Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be glorified in your sight. O God, for you are my rock and you are my redeemer. Amen. I spent much of the early part of 2020 trashing my parents' kitchen and swearing at the stove. In an attempt to keep sane during the initial lockdown portion of the pandemic, I was going to teach myself to bake bread. I was gonna nurse a sourdough starter from scratch. I was gonna do it the ancient way. I was gonna make beautiful artisanal breads. I named my soon-to-be burbling gloriously alive sourdough starter Ned and put it out in a place of honor. After two weeks of babysitting the starter, wasting way too much flour, and we didn't have, and driving my mother absolutely insane, I gave up on it and fed poor Ned to the garbage disposal. <laughs> I actually think Ned had died a few days earlier. I was just disposing of his crusty remains. Undeterred by my failure at wrangling wild microorganisms to do my bidding, I ventured out the next day in early, full pandemic couture. Gloves, masks, hand sanitizer, bleach wipes, and clothes you took off in the garage as soon as you got home. I was hunting flour and yeast. If I couldn't do it the ancient way, I was going to take advantage of modern tech. I ended up at Restaurant Depot. By that point, the only flour and yeast you could find was the kind that had been packaged and marketed for the now shut down restaurant industry. I was successful in my hunt and came home with my prize. I had procured an industrial-sized package of active dry yeast and a 20-pound sack of flour, much to my mother's dismay. We then had to figure out exactly how to store more yeast and flour than any home pantry was designed for. We spent that afternoon outside on the deck filling and weighing Ziploc bags full of flour. I haven't even gotten into the bread failures I I haven't even gotten into the bread failures once I had all the supplies. The rye bread that came out more as a dark brown pizza puck than any sort of bread. The white bread that failed to rise and somehow wasn't white. The time I overproofed everything and so when I went to move it into the oven it just poof, deflated and sank. Sank like the, like the Titanic sank dramatically to a mournful Celine Dion tune in my head. The next morning, my father cut the doomed bread up, fried it in some butter, and dropped an egg on it, like we do just about for everything in my house. Not exactly the triumphant Great British Bake Off style finale I was hoping for. I kept trying because bread, bread is magical. It's also temperamental as hell. You need to knead it just enough to beat the flour into creating gluten, but not so much that it gets tough. That gluten then holds everything together when the yeasts start eating all the sugar, natural or otherwise, and forms air bubbles that makes the bread rise, except you can't let it go too far or you'll use up all the dough stretch, and then, poof, Titanic time. It's seemingly simple, yet there are so many places it can go wrong. It's no wonder it gains an almost mystical aura around it. Bread is ancient. They found the remains of bread made from wild grains dated at the earliest to 14,600 BCE. They found grindstones that date to 30,000 BCE. 
It's tied to the rise of civilization in Mesopotamia and Egypt. Once we figured out how to grow grain and make flour out of it, we made bread. We also figured out its rowdy friend beer for a longer term storage and water purification. Then came agrarian societies, culture, buildings, science, everything. For most of history, bread, little bit of vegetable or fruit or meat, was pretty much the meal for everybody except the aristocracy. Bread is life. So it's not that surprising that bread ends up in a starring role in the Bible. It's shared, multiplied, given, used at the Last Supper. It was also an object that just about everyone in the time the Bible was written would have understood. Just before the passage read today, Jesus performed what have become some of his most famous miracles. He fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fishes. He walked across the Sea of Galilee from one side to the other. I've actually been to the Sea of Galilee. It's not nearly the size of, say, Lake Michigan, but it's a decent-sized body of water. Big enough that when you stand on one side, you really can't see the other. The day I was there, it was calm, tranquil, almost meditative. The north of Israel is hilly and far greener than you're probably imagining, especially around the rivers and lakes. So walking across a body of water was not a tiny miracle either. So when Jesus gets to Capernaum and gets pulled aside by a crowd that just seems to want him to do the bread trick again, I think his reaction of, dude, really? Really, really, it's pretty understandable. What more did they want? He'd made food out of thin air. The crowd probably didn't see him walk on water, but there was enough evidence that he was, I don't know, teleporting or something. I find myself asking questions of this whole situation. Who made a point to chase Jesus down like a bunch of band groupies? Were they poor folk who just wanted another meal? Or were they people that wanted to see a show? You know, the sort of people that would have just been, bleh, you know, the sort of people that would have just been as entertained by Jesus trying and failing to do a miracle as if he had actually done one. As much as my instinct is to give them all the benefit of the doubt I am and imagine them as hungry, I think they might have been there for the show. In the next part of the passage after the reading today, they scoff at Jesus. So this is Jesus. We know this guy. And now he's claiming he came down from heaven? Uh-huh, sure. We don't really point, point it out in church that often, but Jesus was not a hometown hero. We like to pretend people just got on board with his message right away and immediately knew this was the way. They didn't. When Jesus went home to the north, he often got this reaction to his message. They knew him and probably thought he was a little nuts. At one point, Jesus basically rolls his eyes and declares Nazareth hopeless. After all, he wasn't the only one running around claiming to be a messiah at that time. Life under Rome wasn't easy, and that kind of circumstance tends to breed people claiming to be a savior. Monty Python's Life of Brian got that absolutely right. The region was a quagmire of saviors, crackpots, and so-called revolutionary leaders. Jesus was one of many. He just is the one that, you know, happened to be the one. So while preparing for the sermon, one of the commentators I read noted that they got impatient with the crowd. Don't they see that Jesus is right there? The way is there? I think that commentator was giving himself a little bit too much credit. 
Let's be honest with ourselves. I know in the kind of historical circumstances found in the first century Holy Land, I probably would have been with the crowd, gawking, gossiping, and wanting to see just what the weirdo from Nazareth would do next. I'd be looking at the person next to me commenting, dude, I'm just here for the food. Let's see what this one has to say. He fed us last time. The other messiahs didn't feed us. It's no wonder Jesus makes a snarky comment and then almost insults the crowd. At this point, Jesus goes back to basics. Maybe they'll get it this time. He talks about bread, something everyone understands. When the crowd mentions his Moses and manna from heaven, he seizes on the opportunity and extends the bread metaphor. All of that bread came from God, not Jesus or Moses. Spiritual bread, food for the spirit. So what does food for the spirit look like? What feeds a spirit, your spirit? For some, it's being able to come to church on Sunday and celebrate the divine in community. For others, perhaps a solitary walk in the forest or little Eliza being adorable this morning or perhaps communing with the beloved pet. For me recently, it was taking a family vacation to Tower Hill and playing on the beach with my three-year-old niece. It probably doesn't sound like it, but I found a few days with family in a cabin that was just a little too small for us, a profoundly spiritual and centering experience for me at the time. In something that would surprise very few of you, singing is also a profoundly spiritual experience for me. I've never felt closer to the divine than when I was singing. So what makes you feel close to the divine? The spiritual bread, that from heaven, is what will keep you fed. That food of the spirit. Belief in God, in the spirit, in the message Jesus was sharing. Taking the time to find what feeds you spiritually will keep you full far longer than physical bread. If you dare to put your trust in God, in Jesus' message, you will be fed. If you keep at it, keep looking for whatever it is that feeds you spiritually, eventually it will all make sense. Just as eventually, making bread will start to make sense. You'll learn from every mistake you make, and by the end of my pandemic-induced stay at my parents' house, I'd begun to get the hang of it. I'd figured out white and rye, and even a cinnamon raisin loaf or two. They weren't the prettiest loaves. I'm sure Mary Berry and Paul Hollywood would have plenty of critiques, but they were recognizably bread. You could even toast it. While I got the bread to at least passable, I'm still working on that spiritual food. I think we all are, and that's okay. We're all working on finding what fulfills us spiritually, and perhaps learning how to pray more or better. Maybe we're wondering how we can be in better community with each other. Yeah. I'm just here for the food, just the spiritual as well as the physical. Amen.